Hello and welcome to Think Like an Owner. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with Jerry Joe from Hood & Strong. What goes into the tax diligence portion of a quality of earnings report? So the tax diligence that we were thinking about here is most of the small business that we, we take on in the acquisition is they are usually S-corps, partnerships, uh, pass-through entities. So from that standpoint, generally speaking, the income tax piece is uh, removed if that just doesn't get transferred to the buyer if it's structured properly. But other tax that potentially can carry over to the buyer with exposure are what we call the trust fund tax. And this includes payroll tax, uh, sales tax. And what we do on the quality of earnings is that we take on some limited procedures around what's relevant from that standpoint, namely what's what's the exposure that the buyer can expect. And around you know, payroll tax, sales tax, the sales tax is, is one that has become a, a lot more tricky these days, uh, especially with this uh, South Dakota versus wafer that got introduced back in 2018. We're seeing a lot more states that are going after business based on where they're selling to. So the, the, the business has the responsibility to collect, remit, and file sales tax returns in a state that their customer resides, as opposed to where the business is, uh, where the employees are. And this affects a lot of the software transactions that we see. And part of the scope is that we want to be able to at least have a high-level analysis and evaluation whether there's any um, significant exposure that we think in those specific area. And if there is, then we can uh, narrow down and be more focused to quantify what that exposure that the buyer needs to be aware of. Great. Thanks, Jerry. To learn more about Hood & Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com for more information. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small company today and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at thearbitershandbook.com. My guest on this episode is Ujwal Velikapudi. Ujwal has acquired nine small companies, pieces of real estate, and other investments over the past few years, and has stumbled upon quite a number of unique companies. He's invested in a vending business, virtual assistant business, commercial real estate, a sports bar, and several others. This episode is all about getting started, and its departure from our usual episodes about larger businesses to focus on small, incremental deals run efficiently. Ujwal is really thoughtful and claims not to be a great manager or operator, but I advise you not to believe him. We talk all things amusement vending, reinvesting profits, close calls, what he's interested in today, and has changed views on debt. Enjoy. It was fun to meet you at SM Bash. There was a business you were talking to us about that you bought off MicroQuire and has done really well. Uh, I'd love to hear, let's just start off with that one and then can you walk us through kind of the other businesses you bought and how you got into them and what made them exciting to you? Yeah, so the MicroQuire one, that's it's a company called HighByron.com. And I bought that at the beginning of 2021 uh, on January 1st. So it was it was simply a little project that started off as I wanted to test my thesis. You know, I've had prior to that, I bought four different businesses and some went okay, some went 
not so okay. So I said, I need to pilot or test run my little thesis so that when I go in and jump into a much larger business, I'll be able to do it with confidence. And so I went out trying to buy a smaller business and eventually found one on MicroAcquire, knew the second that I saw it, that it, it was it's simply the one that I wanted. It was on Christmas Eve, I believe. And I reached out to the seller, put in an offer. And within 12 hours, I think we ended up getting it under contract, had a purchase agreement signed and closed in five days. So we were working all through Christmas, Christmas Eve, all the way till New Year's Eve. So it was a very small company, but it, it's a productized service. So it's got virtual assistants that are 100% US-based, US college educated. And the goal was simply on the front end. Can I make, can I source a good deal? Can I actually go through the diligence and make sure that everything vets out, everything checks out and go through a proper seller transition? And this was probably the cleanest business that I've ever been a part of. And just the whole transaction was great. And you had to be pretty fast too, right? Like this was still... It was early days, microacquire, but it was still like there was a lot of volume on that site. And so you had to be pretty quick and pretty wide ranging in the ways that you reached out to the seller. Can you walk through some of the ways you did that? Yeah, my little secret was, I think at the point he, even by the time that I reached out, he told me that he had well over 150 or something inquiries. So what I did was I jumped off the platform and I got his name and the business. So I hunted him down and got his email address, LinkedIn, and hit him on those platforms. But email, I said, my subject was serious cash buyer will close within two emails or something like that. And so, nice. and then the body was just, hey, here's two sentences about who I am, but here's exactly what I'm going to do. I have cash and I will close within two email transactions. So I'm going to send out one email and I've got probably 15, 20 questions that are very specific to exactly your business because I've already done my diligence in the last two hours that I've initially seen this thing, went through the entire website. So very specific questions that hit, you know, they weren't just generic. I'm not copying and pasting this stuff. They were extremely specific to, I mean, down to the certain pages, some of the technical aspects and you know, he can see that I've done some diligence and I've got the cash. And probably the best part is that I will actually purchase and have a signed contract within two weeks. So he saw that and he responded to the first set of questions. He responded to my follow-up questions and then bam, I said, I did what I said I was going to do, had a LOI. And then we went straight from that to the purchase agreement. So then this was all from Christmas Eve to Christmas. So it went pretty quickly. Yeah. That's just great copywriting too. Yeah. Yeah. In hindsight, it turned out to be. Yeah. Have you used that again since then? I have on every single one that I've done since. Because again, this was my thesis, right? Like this was, I didn't even know what that word meant until I got onto SearchFinder and I started seeing everybody testing out these little theories, right? Their thesis. And so I said, all right, let me go about it the right way in a more formal structured way. Let me put together what I've learned in my first four purchases and try it out. You know, this is like my little dummy run. It's a five figure business. It's not that big. Let me test it out. And so I took that same playbook and did it for the larger deals. The one little thing that I added to the larger deals was I put in a three page document of exactly why which will is the right buyer why I am right for that particular business, that team, that industry, and why I'm able to work with the seller and also a little bit about my background. So this is not something that's, you know, on my website or this is something that, you know, is just cookie cutter. This is very custom tailored to my interaction with that seller, my interaction with the company and why I love that company, why you know, calling out individuals, why I've had such a great interaction with my, you know, potential managers or my team, all of that. So it was very, it was genuine, but I would say that stood out 
I put in three legitimate offers last year and it stood out to every single one of them. I was either the front runner or the runner up. That's amazing. And so what is this company? You said it was, there's VAs that are US based, but what does the company do and how big was it when you acquired it? And, and then since then, what's it done? Yeah. So this was about two and a half thousand in MRR. And since then, we're right now at about 45,000, creeping up on passing 50,000 MRR. And so this was started in 2016. And it's, you're able to go on and purchase a block of hours for virtual assistants that are 100% US based, US college educated. And mainly, they're, they know a specific tool. So by tool, I mean, they are people that know QuickBooks, they can work, they can do some booking, bookkeeping work. They work on various CRMs, you know, Zoho, Salesforce, HubSpot, whatever it is, and various other software tools that we utilize. So it's not, although we do provide administrative, basic data entry, things like that, it's more specific to a particular software tool that we utilize. And not that any one of our team members are experts because obviously a Salesforce expert, for, for example, they're going to be, you know, 50, 100, 150, 200 bucks an hour. So we're not experts, but we can do the basic maintenance and administrative work for you guys. So that's really what differentiates us that we're specific to certain products and that we are US based, that we're going to be working in the same time zone. Everybody's got virtual assistant experience uh, for at least three years as well. And we vet every team member internally. So it's not like we're just picking up people up off the streets. No, we vet them internally, project by project, and then they're able to get onto longer term projects with us. What work were you doing before buying these companies? I mentioned it sounds like you've gotten a couple at this point. Yeah. So I went to school for supply chain management, started off with aerospace companies and then went into automotive companies. And I think it was less than or just over a year into working full time that I realized I wanted to do something else. I wanted to invest in other opportunities. So I invested in commercial real estate about a year out of college. And that snowballed into buying up additional properties. And then one day I was searching on Craigslist because that's where I bought my first few properties, all commercial real estate. And I was in the business section and stumbled across a pizza shop. So that was my first foray into, it just got the ball rolling. Okay. Checked out the pizza shop. Didn't like that. Checked restaurant. That didn't come to fruition. Checked out a club. That didn't come to fruition after a long time vested in that deal and then finally closed on my first business which was a sports bar and you know from there bought a gym bought an insurance software company and then byron and then an e-commerce company as well and made about another four purchases in the last six months so where's this capital coming from is this just income being thrown out from each previous deal or or what what else is going on here yeah, so yeah, it sounds like a lot of acquisitions and it kind of was, but the size was extremely small. So my very first deal, I year out of college or right out of college, was extremely frugal, was living in someone's basement. My rent was 350, had a budget of 1500 a month. I mean, I was living extremely frugally, saved up 20 grand and sold my car, uh, downsized my car saved up 20 grand and that was my first commercial real estate purchase. So I bought it a three unit, three unit strip, commercial strip in the city of Detroit a year after they filed for bankruptcy. So this was like the bottom of the bottom for the city and absolutely loved it. For me, the economics was extremely different. So got into that and that snowballed into my next few real estate purchases. And then the bar, the gym. I mean, everything that I purchased up till recently were all five-figure deals, or at least the equity that I put into it. So, and I owned everything outright. There was one that had a note on it, which was technically going to be six figures. And then we ended up removing that note as well. So 
ended up being a five-figure purchase overall. So until last year where things kind of, <laughs> I added a few zeros after that and started looking at deals that I've never never done before or never even would have imagined that I would have done. But everything was very, very slow. Uh, I got laughed out when I went into Chase trying to ask for a $15,000 loan on my commercial retail building in the city of Detroit. I was 22 still. And, you know, one, I didn't have the tax returns. I didn't have the finances. And also the property didn't make sense for any lender nor the size. So same thing with the bar. It had to be a cash deal. Quick thing. The gym could have been SBA, but I just didn't have the time. Need to close ASAP. So in addition to the the rents, the cash flow from the previous businesses, all of that, I also took out P2P loans. So I took out, if you've heard of Upstart or SoFi, went to those places, got $35,000 here, got $50,000 here. I opened up for whatever reason, right out of college, I opened up a bunch of credit cards and maxed out the lines. Like I increased them to 25,000, 50,000 for, I don't know why, but I had a really good credit score at the time. And then, so I would be getting the balance transfer cards through the mail. So I would take those and just take out the balance transfers, 0% interest for 12 months, 15 months, 18 months. So I maxed that out. That was 70, 90 grand, I think, somewhere in that ballpark. And so that started in addition to what I had going on, a little bit of the cash that I was able to seed everything. And then one thing snowballed to the, to the next one. Do you still live off of 1500 bucks a month? I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> so to be honest, I did last year for about six months. I was living in Mexico. And so while I was searching for my latest business, I was living in Mexico for probably a little less than that, actually. <laughs> That's nuts. That's wild. So was that just rice and beans? Like, I mean, I guess in Mexico, you know, eating street tacos or something like that. How does that work? Oh, I ate well. I ate well <laughs> in Mexico. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it was, it was tacos. Um, yeah, I ate pretty well. <laughs> That's awesome. And so when you're, you're talking about the deals that you're looking at now that are different than the ones you would have done previously, like what stands out to you now versus you know a couple of years ago? So the funny part is nothing's changed. I, I think back then everything excited me and today everything excites me. So, I mean, of course I've got a lot more battle scars. So I know the types of deals that I don't want to do and the types of industries or businesses that I don't want to see. But still, for the most part, a lot of stuff still excites me. And there are so many unique businesses that I'm still unaware of that I'm every single day learning and getting exposed to that holy cow I want to be a part of that you know I want to buy that type of business or I want to be in that industry in that country or whatever it may be so back then I would spend a lot of time on Craigslist just buying up random buildings and that's how I got my start I mean there's a few businesses that I did not end up purchasing that are still a few oddballs that just simply intrigued me for the business nature of it. So I think that curiosity and that desire to want to learn and just get exposed to different types of weird businesses is still pretty much relevant. So what kinds of businesses do you not want to do now? Definitely no retail, nothing that's B2C, nothing that can be confined to a geographic footprint. So I want it to be something that could be scaled across across states or across cross-country lines and wanting to see something that is not project-based. I'm not the best at sales. I'm actually pretty poor at sales and marketing. So I want to see something that's consistent. If I have a customer, I want them to be continuously purchasing from me or at least have the option to uh, versus going on a project-based. One of my companies was very project-based, had large contracts when we got them, but when we didn't, it was a drought. And I just, I just hate going through that period of uncertainty of, you know, where's my next contract coming from? One of your businesses I know from just chatting with you is this interesting vending business, which I didn't even know existed until you talked about it. Uh, can you share a little bit about what that is and how that one's grown? Yeah. So this is my latest one. This is what I spent the first half of last year really diligencing and working on. 
and this is an amusement vending company. And what that means is we have pool tables, jukeboxes, ATMs, arcade games, etc., all over bars, restaurants, clubs, movie theaters, bowling alleys, fraternal organizations, all of those places. So again, this is retail, but for me, it's a little bit different because this is more B2B. So I give this one a little exemption, but we put in our equipment at no cost to the customer and we do a profit split, a 50-50 split on whatever net profits we, we get to. And our team takes care of everything on the service side. So you got anything down, we'll take care of it. That's just a net profit. So after you've paid all your expenses for that particular piece of equipment, then you split 50-50. Yeah, so we'll take out sales tax. We'll take out, for example, we have some of the claw games, the kitty claw games. We'll have our stuffed animals in there or we might have expensive electronics. You know, we'll have Beats, iPads, iPhones, whatever it is in there. So we have to remove the product fees or the product expenses and then we'll split the... I guess it's gross profit. We don't go all the way down to the granular level of our service technicians have come out here four times, so we're going to charge you for that. That's just that's just our fee that we that we eat. What types of machines have been performing the best of the claw machines, ATMs, jukeboxes? Like, what machines tend to be the most interesting or profitable to you? Yeah. So for us, the claw machines are always good. Those, we call them redemption games. So you are receiving some sort of prize at the end of the day. So those are always going to do well. And historically, they've done very well over the years because you got your little five-year-old, you know, banging on it until you pay for it. So uh, they're always going to do well. The jukeboxes are doing really well. And we've seen a transition in that. I mean, jukeboxes have been around for 100 years, but the last five years, it's really gone towards mobile. And so I think that has helped significantly to be able to upsell, to be able to get more plays. Uh, you don't have to get up out of your seat. You can literally be sitting there two feet away. And we I've seen this. People are literally two feet away from the jukebox, yet they use their mobile app. So mobile aspect and the digital payment aspect has really helped that portion of the business. The ATMs are not my favorite. I do feel like that's a little bit of a decaying market, but record numbers year over year, 20, 21, 22. So those have been doing pretty strong. And the pool tables are always going to be consistent. Uh, We host our own leagues. So we have pool leagues. And likewise, we have dart leagues as well. So the dart boards, they do extremely well at the bars. There's games called Golden Tees, SSBs. Those are more bar-centric games for the adult crowd. And those also have leagues. So for all of these things, we like to put our equipment in there, but not just put it in there, but we also like to coordinate the leagues and we hold the league charters so that we can generate more traffic there, not just for us, but also for our customers, the bar owners themselves, so that they can linger around, buy their food, buy their drinks, all of that. So it's a a full service that we provide and that's what we really like to take care of for our customers. So who runs this? Is this a some is this someone you've hired as a kind of general manager type role or service person or like how, how does this run itself? The company so when I took over, it's a it's over a 20-year-old company, the first one that I purchased. And so I assumed the full operations. And so I was taking over that GM role or the operations role. And then I purchased another one or I guess my third one. My second one I purchased, it was a little tuck-in. I absorbed that right in. My third one, it was a completely different branch altogether, about an hour and a half away. So I went into the new location and to backfill me at the original branch, I had hired someone externally to come in as the ops manager. And so gave him the keys for two months and literally I think seven weeks after he had started, he was supposed to take over. And so he's been doing a great job of taking over the full operations end-to-end, full P&L, but also the full operations. And I spend one day a week physically at that location. And then 
I'm about to do the same thing with this branch as well. So I've got two ops managers. I've got a couple dozen service techs, people who collect money. Uh, there's back office team that takes care of the administrative staff, the bookkeeping, et cetera. How many folks work at all of your companies combined if you look at it as a portfolio? So with this amusement vending company, it's just about 25, 30. And then with Byron, to be honest, I'm not 100% sure on that, but I think it's about 25, 30 as well. But not fully. Byron's got part-time and full-time, uh, split half and half roughly. And then for the amusement company, it's all full-time with a handful of contractors. That's pretty amazing. That's incredible. What kinds of things have you learned about managing teams like that where it's like they're not all doing all 60s, you know, 80 folks aren't doing the same tasks. Like they're not, they're not all in the same company. You'll have like almost context switching across these different teams of companies. How do you, how do you manage that context switching? I'm still learning. <laughs> I think that's, <laughs> it's been definitely a huge learning curve because the companies that I've had before have been all across the spectrum. Uh, professionally as my professional career before I quit, I didn't have any management experience, but I did at my bar, you know, I had my entire team and all my companies, I, I did have that experience, but this was the first one where walking into it first day, I had, you know, about 20 people staring at me and it was just so a little overwhelming to be able to walk into that and, and take all that in. But I think to what you're asking, the team was so they're such experts and a lot of these companies that that are decades old with some sort of scale, they are truly experts in what they do. And so for me, it was just such, such a luxury to be able to walk in. All right, you all know exactly what you do very well and they can take up that entire department and do it extremely well. So for me, it was just managing each department, each one of the pieces as opposed to getting into the nitty gritty and figuring out the tactical level. But for example, the one that I just purchased, it is very tactical because there's not that big of a team. So I've been hiring a bunch to fill it out because the most recent one that I purchased was a carve out. And so there were a lot of shared resources, which I did not inherit. So I'm having to go out externally and hire a lot more folks to really fill out the team that, that they were using shared resources for before. So for me, it's it's just been really relying on the two ops managers with this company. And then for Byron, that's more also <laughs> relying on the ops managers. For me, I just use Slack. I probably spend no more than about 20 minutes a week, maybe a few minutes a day, checking, looking at my Stripe account, maybe sending a message or two on Slack, and that's it. So the ops manager does such a great job, as well as the operator that I put in place to oversee the full operations of that company as well. How do you onboard new employees at each of your companies? For Byron, we have, everything is digitized. So it was, I've got to say, the seller that I bought it from did such an amazing job of having amazing SOPs that we've reiterated and just, just compounded on that. But we have videos, we have full documentation. And so the onboarding is completely automated. We do what we want to get away from. We have been doing some FaceTime and just having that personal touch and showing the platform and all that. But we've gotten to the point where we can provide just a video and of every single aspect of our platform, what to do, what not to do, how to you know, interact with clients, all of that completely either on video or in a, in a manual. So uh, with some SOPs. So I love that onboarding just because we want to be, we want to make it as automated as possible. Whereas on the physical side of things with the amusement company, for example, we just hired someone, a new service technician. It takes about a month for someone to really learn the ropes. We tour them around with every single service technician so that they get a flavor for how everybody on the team works. This person's an expert in jukeboxes. This person's an expert in crane machines. This person's an expert in, you know, refelting and recovering pool tables. So we're going to spend the week with them. So we'll go around each department and kind of put that person with 
an individual whose core competency or who's an expert in one set of machines and go around with the team and until they can start to get a rough understanding of every single piece of equipment. And I've done that with the ops managers as well. So the ops manager, I did not even give them access to a lot of the company, the P&L, the financials or anything until they spent three weeks with the entire team driving around one full day with every single team member. And I think that's worked out amazingly well, just because for me, I didn't have that luxury. I had to jump in, didn't really get to spend a full one-on-one, a full day or a couple of days or anything with any of the team members. I just had to jump in and work on transitioning the vendors, transitioning the customers, all of that. So I said, all right, when I bring someone else on board, I want to be able to give them the luxury that I'm going to do everything until they have really felt out every single role within the company. And so what do you feel like needs to still improve in that process? It sounds like a pretty well thought through process, but there's always places to improve. Like what comes to mind as ways it could be better? I think a little bit more documentation. And yeah, I think it's a little bit more of the documentation and more operationally. It's, for example, if you see our set of keys, it's just going to make your head spin. We've got probably maybe 40, 50 sets of keys. So operationally, we're trying to train somebody. And how in the world, I mean, the guys joke that the toughest part of the job is figuring out which key goes to which machine. And that truly is one of the biggest issues that we have because we have so many types of equipment out there through acquisition or through purchasing a different type of machine from a different vendor. The keys are different. The locks are different. And it's just not unique throughout the entire organization. So that's one huge element that we want to make it synonymous across the board, coast to coast, throughout the entire organization. So that someone comes in, we're not having to train them on keys. It's not slowing them down. And it might seem like such a trivial thing, but it actually is such a big component of onboarding that it does slow down individuals quite a bit. But in addition to that, it's just putting together a manual and kind of an SOP or video tutorials for each and every different type of equipment, making sure that they get access you know, to fix an ATM or fix a jukebox. You need certain online credentials and access. So getting everybody onboarded before they even start having everything ready to go. Simple things like that, simple HR things where since there is no HR team here, it's something that really falls on me or some of our other team members to make sure that before someone gets started, they have all that ready to go on day one. So when you're looking to expand this business, are you just buying new machines and calling up bars and restaurants to see if they'll put in a machine into their their space? Or what's that growth plan look like? It's non-existent as of, as of today. Huh. So for past five, 10 years, it's been non-existent. It's 100% been inbound. And for me as well, I've just been soaking everything in, just learning, just getting the uh, you know just hang of the business. And actually, today was my first time interviewing someone for a sales position, which in the industry, I don't think anybody does true, true sales, outbound sales, like hiring a six-figure salaried person to do purely sales. Usually what it is is the owner, uh, it's a lot of these companies are one-man shows. So the owner's doing a little bit of everything and he's hitting the streets and knocking on doors and asking for bars or restaurants and, hey, can I put my stuff in your place? We'll do this, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we're at the scale where we have enough inbound coming in, but to be able to really crank it up a notch, we have to go outbound. And so the plan that I've that we're starting to put in place is having some sort of digital presence. I think that's going to be pretty significant, especially since nobody has any presence. You will not find any of these companies online. And uh, it's always someone's cell number that hasn't changed in the past 20 years that you're calling up. So having a good digital presence is going to be key. Maybe not for today, since a lot of customers are still relatively old school in how they find you. But going forward for a lot of the newer establishment customers, it's it's going to make a pretty significant difference. And then having a door-to-door salesperson to actually hit every one of our locations and maintain those relationships. Because 
maybe this owner doesn't actually go with us today, but bars change hands quite frequently. Restaurants do as well. Ice cream parlors, theaters, fraternal organizations. I mean, all these places will change either guards or ownership or management where we will be able to come in at some point and provide them our services. So that's really been the organic way. But I will say I'm not good at sales again or marketing and I don't like organic growth. And we have more than doubled in just the past six months because simply bought a new company that was the same size. So that's how we've been growing. And I think growing through acquisition is probably the easiest way for me right now. And then organically, that's the way I want to, I really want to incorporate the sales aspect of it so that we have the organic as well, especially if you know there's any market fluctuations, if I don't have enough capital at the time to be able to make another purchase. I think that's going to be pretty key that we have a, an actual robust sales group internally working on these new accounts. So when you say that there's no web presence, but there's still inbound, are you putting your kind of company name and phone number on each of these machines and people just see them and think it's interesting and call you? Yeah. So every one of our pieces of equipment has our sticker on there and it's, so that's one element. So I'm a bar owner. I'm sitting down at somebody else's bar or restaurant and I see this and I'm going to call that number or the bar community is small. The, you know, a lot of these hospitality business owners, it's a small community. So, oh, hey, you know, who are you guys using? Okay, well, I'm going to call them too. So it's just kind of a little word of mouth thing that spreads as well. And just being in the industry, uh, one company was over 20 years old. Another company was 35 years old. So it's just being in the industry, I think, is, is going to get your name out there. And by inbound, I'm still, for example, there were two owners that I bought out smaller level, you know, just um, smaller companies, one person, two people operators. And those are still, they're still getting inbound. So they pass those leads on to us. How much would the average machine earn a net profit for the restaurant on a monthly basis? Because I I would imagine that helps with retention if they're making a few hundred bucks or a few thousand bucks even on a monthly basis. I'm sure they're just excited for you to keep that machine there as long as possible. Yeah, it's... It's going to vary considerably. There's locations that barely scrape by, depending on how much we have in there, a hundred bucks, a couple hundred bucks. And then there's some that are doing thousands a month net their side. So it just really depends on how busy their location is, the type of demographics and their demographics and volume overlaid on what type of equipment that we have in there. So it's really going to benefit us for us to uh, get a true understanding of that particular location and know that, okay, this is a little kid's restaurant. Having this particular type of equipment is not going to be the most applicable. Whereas we can put this in, you know, maybe a bar and it's going to do 10 times better and vice versa. We can put these types of equipment at this type of restaurant in this certain city with their type of clientele that's going to do a lot better. For example, little rookie mistakes that, you know, we've done put in a Terminator game at a bounce house that only has five-year-olds <laughs> or below coming in. That's awesome. You know? So, you know, those little head-scratching moves that you just kind of do because, oh, well, we got this extra piece. Let's throw it in there. You know, it doesn't have to be in our warehouse. It can make a buck or two. Well, it's literally making a buck or two. And so, but yeah, it's, it's going to vary. And that's why the sell is relatively easy. I was telling the sales guy that came in this morning, if you can't sell this, I don't know what to tell you because we are putting in tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment at your facility at zero cost to you, fully taken care of by a pretty substantial team. And we are available all the way up till 11 p.m. at night, 24, I mean, seven days a week, 365 days a year, including holidays. And we'll split everything 50-50. I mean, what's, as long as you have the real estate in your business, that's all you need. And you will make a substantial amount. You know, so it's kind of a no-brainer. But of course, some of the rejections that we do get are, well, I don't have the space or 
you know, they just don't understand it quite yet. Or maybe legitimately they don't have the right type of clientele. You know, this is a pizza shop that's more of a to-go spot. Well, okay. Uh, it's not really going to make sense to put a lot of equipment in there. So it's, like you said, we are truly the second biggest revenue source for most of our customers. And so when we walk in someplace, it's it's like they've got a smile on their face because we know they know that we're, we're about to pay them, you know, and that can't be said for most vendors. You know, most vendors, they come in and it's like, man, this guy's coming in again. You know, he's about to ask for money. But for us, we give money. So it's a little bit of a different relationship, different financial uh, relationship. We're truly in bed together financially. And so that allows us to have a little kind of a different sort of relationship than other vendors that they may have because we're in it together. You want to make money and so do we. So we're going to advise you the right type of equipment. We want to hear your feedback on who's coming in, who's not so that we can provide you guys and us the best feedback. We don't want anything down. So a machine's down, call us. Call us right now as soon as it goes down, not two days from now because that's two days of lost revenue. So little things like that truly make it a little partnership for whatever small portion of the revenue that we are for. That's awesome. I remember in my college internship, one of my jobs was to send out the reimbursement checks for employee expenses. So if someone like paid for parking somewhere and they, you know, had got a reimbursement, I'd walk around the office and drop them all off and quickly became the favorite intern in the office, which was really fun. I imagine that's the same feeling your your team gets. What are some of the just not even just in this business, but broadly, like what are some mistakes you've made where perhaps things got like it was a strong learning experience for you that maybe not could have bankrupted you, but just like, it sounds like you've had to kind of like live off the skin of your teeth for a little while. I'd love to hear any sort of moments along that journey where things could have gone much more south than they obviously did. Yeah. So I actually keep a spreadsheet. I call it my lessons learned spreadsheet and I've had it since my first business. And so it's got details about every single business from the real estate to now the nine businesses that I've purchased over the years with the good things and the bad things of every single one. Cause even on a good purchase, you know, you can have a bunch of lessons learned. So, and there's, there's so many, but some of the biggest ones just don't believe it's over till it's absolutely over. And I see this a lot today where, you know, people get super excited for a contract being signed or this and that being completed within a deal. But for me, I've been on the front end and the bad end of so many deals that I know that it's not truly over till it's absolutely over. I've got the keys, the money's wired over in their account, not just wired from my end, but it's in their account. It's settled. All of that. I mean, I've just got PTSD with just so many terrible scenarios that where my deals have not closed that all of those things need to happen. And I mean, one of my, actually my second deal ever, it was a small apartment complex. It burned down in front of me four days before closing. My realtor calls me and he says, yeah, turn on the news, man. Unfortunately, you know, we're not closing in four days on this Friday. And so I turn on and, you know, there it is, my building's burning down. So um, that taught me early on, all right, it's actually got to close. You know, it's just because just you got a closing date even though you're a few days away, it doesn't mean anything. So that's one thing, whether it's a little contract that we're signing or it's a business that we're purchasing, whatever it is. I mean, it could be an employee that we've offered. Well, I don't care if they accepted, they've got to start and they've got to actually work a few weeks before I feel like, okay, they're actually a part of the team. I mean, you have people jumping ship all the time. So those experiences have taught me that all right, you've actually got to completely see it through if it's a deal or make sure that it's completely done. In addition to that, just having contracts. I remember making an investment, a small angel investment, literally off of what this person told me, had a few good conversations, and then a full year goes by before I got a contract. And I've done that a couple of times. And so that was a pretty big lesson learned where I need to have 
something on paper. And I've heard that, you know, you hear it all the time. You got to put it on paper, but it was just surprising that I actually did it foolishly without putting something on paper and gave out a little good chunk of money. And so that as well as firing people quickly, that's one thing that I wish I would still do sooner than later. I think I keep people just, I'm just not the best manager. And I think I just, ah, well, you know, they're doing all right. Let me just keep them around. And you know what? I think ultimately net net, they're actually harmful to the team, whether it's culturally or just not bringing a game, you know, they're a C player or B minus and they shouldn't be around, but because they've been acclimated, assimilated into your organization, I keep them around. And that's one thing that I, I think I really need to work on of cutting the cord a lot sooner. Yeah. Moving to some closing questions. What college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted? I would definitely do business acquisition. I, I think that's the one thing that I might not be the greatest at, but I absolutely love to do. So I would find a class I've been thinking about this where it could be paid for, for the actual purchase of a business and you help students actually go through that entire purchase and to go on with the actual operation of the business. You could just put your spreadsheet up on the slide and just call it good there. <laughs> yeah. Well, with the lessons learned? Yeah. Yeah. Just put up all, every lesson, every failure, <laughs> every you know, success as well. Like put them all up on this massive, like few hundred row spreadsheet and just let, like, just dive into one like every day in class and talk about it. Yeah. I mean, for me, I learned so much by burning my own hand that I would want others to burn their hands too. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd rather have them learn through doing. It is kind of funny. Like everyone, like you'll hear like, experiences or lessons where someone had to learn the hard way to do something and you think when you when you hear that you think oh okay that, that means i won't make that mistake when it eventually happens to me and you know 95 percent of the time you make the exact same mistake even though you've heard it over and over and there's some there's something about like learning just through experience and burning your hand as you say that you just can't get through hearing that lesson from someone else like someone can tell you straight to your face to avoid this mistake and you'll still do it so consistently Mm-hmm. I've done it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard. <laughs> I need to work on that one too. What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? I think the starting off when you had asked me, you know, how'd you finance these? It was all cash, you know, and then oddball debt here and there, but I've never had a true loan before until last year. And I was always like, okay, these got to be cash purchases. I, it's a lot safer. It's a lot easier to work with, even though I had oddball debt here and there until I got my last business. Obviously, I couldn't finance you know, seven-figure EBITDA or seven-figure purchase or eight-figure purchase. So I was like, I needed some debt. So I took that on. And then most recently, I bought an equally substantial business, 100% finance, pure debt. I had literally four digits in my bank account. So... It was 100% financed. And I think two things over there, it's to be able to use the debt, to be able to actually get to what I want without and simultaneously without losing any equity. So I think that's one thing that I was willing to do before to give up some equity, even though I never have before. This time around, I said, no, you know what? I'm going to get everything 100% financed, but while still actually retaining 100% equity. So, you know, I I think that's, as I move forward, I think something that I've opened up to, financing portion, which I've never taken on that like that before. And once I've done it, I love it. So as long as I'm being conservative and the multiples are there, the debt service ratios are there, the coverage ratios are there, and I'm playing within certain comfort levels, I've like really liked it so far. Yeah, it seems like something that, you're nervous about the first time, but like I remember Bill D'Alessandro talked about like how much he loves SBA debt. Oh, yeah. The greatest thing he's ever seen. <laughs> That's awesome. What's the best business you've ever seen? Best business I've ever seen. This was about 18 months ago. Stumbled across this business where it was 
nearly an eight-figure EBITDA business. It was a husband and wife team that had been at it for almost 30 years selling rice. And it was this, <laughs> it was this, they were importing rice from Asia and selling it in the States. And it just blew my mind. I mean, one, the scale, just period, that just absolutely blew my mind that they grew it to that size. And then to compound on that, they were operating to get 100% out of their basement. So they were in their 70s, operating it out of their basement. They had two part-time staff. I mean, the whole thing, the whole thing. And immigrant couple, barely knew the language. And also operationally, just not even light. I mean, this would just, they had nothing except for their laptops and, and their paperwork. That's it. So they held zero inventory, weren't even drop shipping it. It was just a pickup at the ports from the customers. So overall, just operationally light, moving around eight figures worth of rice and various product. And by this elderly couple that, I don't know, I just thought it was beautiful how they grew it to that scale over the past few decades. That's incredible. And so did you offer to buy it? I did not put in an offer. For me, I just thought it was, I mean, it did have a little COVID bump. So I think it increased by 70, 80% due to COVID. And this was end of 2020. So I'm sure 2021 would have been even larger. So it probably would have been an okay purchase had I made it. But for me, it was just a little bit too much to chew off that one. It would have needed private equity or additional capital or other partners to be part of it. So one, I didn't, I wouldn't have been a hundred percent equity owner, which I didn't necessarily like at that time. And also thought it was a little bit misvalued, but overall still beautiful business. Yeah. No kidding. That's a, that's a pretty incredible business. That's, that's one of the best I've, I've heard on the show so far. Well, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of time. I always love getting to chat and just want to meet you at SM Bash. Hope to see you next year and hear about the half a dozen other new businesses that you've probably bought in the meantime. Uh, it feels like you're always up to something. So good to hear a little bit about it so far. Yep. You too, Alex. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you want to learn more about The Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better. Music